Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 70. I am so glad that you are here. Special welcome to those who are listening for the very first time, checking out the show and the podcast. So glad you're here. Welcome. And for everybody, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast so you do not miss an episode. Our guest is Raymond Pryor. Now, he is one of the most sought-after names in performance psychology by the world's best performers. Now, he is a Ph.D. His clients have included major champions, world champions, Olympic gold medalists, individual and team national champions, national coaches of the year, award winners, countless NCAA All-Americans. Dr. Pryor also works with non-sport performers, including Grammy and Oscar and Tony winners, Emmy winners, performing on stage and on screen. Dr. Pryor is a certified mental performance consultant by the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. Dr. Pryor is also a researcher and an author. He's authored books, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and contributed chapters to several performance psychology textbooks and published research in the Journal of Applied Sports Psychology. And he is also the author of a brand new book, Golf Beneath the Surface, The New Science of Golf Psychology. So what are you going to learn this episode? I just hope you have a pen and a piece of paper handy. And after you get done listening to the episode, think about who you can share this episode with. It's that good. If you love mindset, if you love learning about how you can live a happier, healthier life, dealing with uncertainty, and how to develop more stable confidence, Raymond Pryor is going to be speaking your language. Welcome to episode 70. Here, everyone, is Dr. Raymond Pryor. Raymond, welcome to the podcast. It's really good having you here. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Okay, Raymond, you heard my introduction of you and take us back to how did you then land in the area of being a performance psychologist? Do I have that right? Is that how, is that your official title? How did you? Yeah, learn? yeah. I'll allow me to, to correct. So the term just, and this is important for everybody, not just for my self-serving purposes, but the term psychologist is a legally protected term by the American Psychological Association that indicate somebody who is trained in clinical psychology, ah. right? So claiming you're a psychologist when you are not actually a licensed clinical psychologist is technically illegal. It's also unethical because it um, it's misleading to people about what your training is and isn't. So yeah. my professional term is um, performance consultant. My mm -hmm. area of expertise is performance psychology. There's some overlap with what we might deem clinical psychology or therapy. I do have a master's in counseling as well, um, but I am not a therapist or a clinical psychologist. I don't do clinical assessment or clinical intervention. Um, how I got into it is a long and winding road. So I'll try to give the abridged version to it, which is, um, I was a relatively high performing athlete growing up. I played soccer at a pretty high level. And when I was in college, I was um, not playing very much dealing with an injury and spent the first, for the first time in my life, I was watching more soccer than I was playing. Mm. And I noticed um, more with more detail than ever in my life that there were players that I just didn't understand why they didn't play better because they were just freakishly athletic, hyper-skilled. And for me, it just seemed like there's no reason that they shouldn't play well all of the time. And yet there were other players. I remember there was one guy on my college soccer team who played well all the time and he was kind of out of shape in a sport where you kind of need to be in shape. <laughs> and But he just played well. Practice, um, games against easy opponents, games against better opponents, important games, quote unquote, like you know, elimination games that are always played well. 
And I found myself kind of wondering, how does this happen? And of course, I knew about confidence and focus from the colloquial terms we use through sport and from what coaches were saying, but didn't really have an understanding of it. And it just so happened that at the same time, I was taking an abnormal psychology class as a elective uh, in college. And at the, the clinical psychology version of abnormal psychology is you get a Rolodex of clinical disorders that have population frequencies, diagnostic criteria, um, everything from treatment options, et cetera. And it just, you go one by one through all of these types of things. And at the very end of a class, like the last two minutes, the instructor went, oh, and by the way, there are these 1% of people who their thoughts and actions are so high performing that by definition, they are abnormal. And my thought was, why aren't we spending a lot of time talking about that? And um, as that kind of led me to more questions and kind of asking more people kind of sparked my curiosity. Um, and then it was at the time where, you know, my soccer career and my body was telling me this is probably not going to happen for you uh, based on the amount of injuries that I had already been dealing with that I just got really curious as to, well, if it's not just about physical skill and strategies and just being in shape, like what is it that's keeping people from performing more? And then I asked a bunch of questions and then, you know, 20 years later and 15 more years of graduate school. And here we are. Hmm. Well, that isn't a bridge version. Okay. So with that as a backdrop, then at what point did you then decide to get into sports and that what I'll call more of a niche? Um, and and maybe that's an assumption on my, my part. Are you mainly dealing with sports related type clients or is it translate into business as well? Yeah, it's the term sports psychology is relatively outdated now. I think just performance psychology is far more accurate and inclusive. Um, this, so my clientele primary fall into three buckets. There's sport. So athletes primarily right now in my career, I work with what might be statistically considered elite athletes, that's professional Olympic and usually high level college athletes. I do work with non elite athletes, but primarily um, elite athletes. The next bucket would be like performing artists. So that's your actors and actresses, pop stars, writers, um, the people who are performing for others um, outside of the sport arena. And then the last bucket of client that kind of fit for me are like corporate professionals. So that's everything from hedge fund managers, salespeople, um, CEOs and COOs and people who are operating companies looking to figure out how to get more out of people, knowing how important human psychology is. Um, so we as human beings are always performing. Sport is just one avenue of that. And when we understand the psychology related to it, we can get more out of ourselves and also the experiences become more fulfilling and more enjoyable. You know, I've done a little bit of research on you, listened to a few podcast interviews, uh, read some of your work, and I've heard you talk about and write about surface level psychology, if I have that phrase right, because the surface mm -hmm. level, and you have a real passion for going deeper than that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What's, what is surface level psychology and how are you taking it to another level? Yeah, surface level psychology for me is really well-intentioned information that unfortunately though is often inaccurate and not deep enough to lead to lasting change for people. Um, you know, it's kind of, we might call it pop psychology might be another term where it might uh, describe something. For example, in sport, you hear people say all the time, you got to be present or you need to be confident, right? 
which again, at, in college, when I was noticing the difference between two players of varying skill levels, but playing in opposite directions in terms of competence, and I'm going, well, clearly one person is more confident than the other, but like, how do you just decide to be confident, right? So telling someone just be confident or just relax is this surface level approach where it clearly goes, well, if that's not happening, meaning you're not confident, well, then just be the other thing. And what we find is like, it's just really not very helpful for people. And the reason is because it doesn't go deep enough into the mechanistic layers of what creates confidence or uh, develops focus. You know, it'd be like telling someone live a healthier lifestyle. Well, okay, well, what are the mechanisms behind that? What are the protocols and processes that would um, lead to sustainable change behind that? And the danger with surface level psychology is it creates this idea that change for us psychologically is as simple as just making a decision. You're doing this, just do something different. Right. And for the vast majority of the time, that is not how it works in the same way that you went, this is a very heavy weight, go lift it. If you've never lifted that before and you don't know what the form is or what the process is for doing so, it makes it um, more harmful than it is helpful for us. So for me, going beneath the surface is, can I understand my psychology more on an accurate and mechanistic level? And even though it's a little bit more work and it is more comprehensive, it's that depth of knowledge and the comprehensive understanding that allows you to simplify in real time. When we don't understand things very well, it makes things more complicated when we're actually performing. You know, if you don't know much about how your car works and it breaks down, it's a lot more complicated than if you really understand how the combustion engine works or et cetera, right? Yeah. Same with our psychology. If we understand the mechanisms of confidence, when we can adjust in real time much more efficiently than if our understanding of confidence is, oh, I'm not just, just trust which again, what we, when we tell that to people, it sounds really good on the surface, but underneath it usually does more harm than good. Okay. Well, I am so guilty. I am so guilty. So I'm, yeah. I've been in corporate America uh, for about 30 years and um, Raymond, I can't tell you how many articles I've written or speeches I've given or seminars I've given about the have a growth mindset. <laughs> and if you were to listen to it, you would say, well, there it is there. <laughs> there it is very surface level because part of what I, I train on is the importance of having a growth mindset, abundant thinking versus scarcity thinking. Yeah. And you would say, you haven't heard my, my talk, obviously, but you kind of know where I'm going to be going here. So you would say that that, that type of a training is um, what? It's, it's pretty common, but it's just not mm -hmm. hitting the mark. It can be really valuable for people. You know, there's a reason the growth mindset and fixed mindset that Carol Dweck has discovered has found its way into every single as aspect of performance. And because it's a common thread that either keeps people moving forward toward growth or it doesn't, or it will stunt them. Right. So understanding that on a surface level is still valuable, but if you're actually going, okay, you have a, a fixed mindset. Now we're going to shift into more of a growth mindset. You better really understand, first of all, what they actually are. And just saying have a growth mindset is not, developing a growth mindset. You have to understand that those are two different core beliefs about where ability comes from and how it's cultivated. One of them is a fixed approach that either you have it or you don't, which if you then go a layer down, if I either think I have it or I don't, when I meet significant challenges in my life, they're either going to confirm or deny that. And the mm. bottom line is at some point, I'm going to run into a challenge that is going to deny it. And then my, then my options are, well, I guess I'm not who I think I am and I want to give up. So we find that people with a fixed mindset are not very resilient. But if you understand the mechanisms at play, you go, oh, my belief 
anything I do through this core belief of I either have it or I don't comes out at either validating or invalidating myself and my ability. And if I can see that and zoom out from it, then I can start to go through my experiences differently simply by going, what if I went into this, just seeing what happens without it confirming or denying, but just telling me where I am right now, not some future conclusion, that's on a more mechanistic level. Again, surface level psychology is well-intentioned and can be helpful to a degree. But if we're really talking about sustainable change, the kind that we want in our lives that make us happier, healthier, higher performing people in a variety of conditions, usually more is required. So you've mentioned this a couple of times, the, the, the word simplify, and I've, I've got a phrase here that I, I wrote down at a mechanistic level, simplify your performance real time. I want to make sure I connect the dots there. What does that mean as far as how do you simplify your performance in real time? What would one have to do to begin practicing this? I'm asking for a simple answer. I'm sure there isn't one, sure. but. Yeah, let's ooh, use yeah. your fixed and growth mindset. So starting a more in-depth or we might say below the surface approach is like acknowledging, I'm pretty sure I got a fixed mindset because I now I know what it is, right? Yeah. So now I've built a level of self-awareness about where my starting point is. So already I'm starting to gear myself toward growth because I go, well, here's where I am currently, right? Then as I go into the challenging situations in my life, if I'm aware of, okay, pay attention to the, the symptoms we see from a fixed mindset, for example, overthinking, anxiety, et cetera, then I can learn to, to respond to those types of triggers with a different level of awareness and with a different response, which what we're really trying to get people to do is be more present more often. And what that does is it gears us toward this different approach when we are actually in real time. But if I don't understand that at a mechanistic level and I'm just go, okay, you're in fixed mindset, just go fix growth or just go to a growth mindset, but I don't really know what that is. I don't know what the signs and symptoms are. And I don't know what the shift is, which is really can you just be in the thing while you're in the thing without projecting the future or creating it as some type of validating measure? Now you've got an opportunity to actually see growth. And then now your actual direct experience matches your conceptual learning. But without that depth of conceptual understanding about it, your direct experience can't cross. So if we think about how we learn things, there's declarative learning, which is us like understanding something conceptually. That's kind of the rational thinking part of our brain. Then you have procedural learning, which is understanding something through your direct experience. And when those two things merge, that's what we get wisdom. And wisdom leads to sustainable change for us. And so without an in-depth enough understanding conceptually, it's very difficult to get our direct sen like um, sensory experience to match that. Because if I don't understand the mechanisms, when I have a fixed mindset and I go tell myself being a growth mindset and it doesn't just lead to instant change, I go, see, I told you I either have or I don't. And I just confirmed that I don't I don't even have what it takes to be in a growth mindset. Wow. And the cycle perpetuates itself over and over again. So to answer your question, when we understand it more in depth and in understanding, then the procedural, meaning our direct experience stuff with starts to change, mm -hmm. not instantly and magically and overnight, but incrementally. And that incremental growth is what leads to sustainable change. Okay. So incremental growth, let's say if I wanted to become a more, more confident, and I know you've written about this also about stable confidence, how would I become more confident in an area that's important to me and increase my performance? I think I would, if I was working with a client, I would certainly start by asking, well, where 
do you, where are you building from confidence currently that is causing the instability? And it doesn't take a psychology expert to figure out that if you build confidence off of unstable sources, your confidence is going to be unstable in the same way. If you built your house on an unstable foundation, then don't be surprised if it gets blown over in a windstorm. The downside to surface level psychology right now in our pop psychology is that it is oftentimes gravitating people toward really unstable sources of confidence. And this is becoming more prevalent and more, and I will dare say dangerous in our modern world, because in our world of abundance, there is no shortage of what I call fool's gold, or you might say junk food confidence, which is like stuff that just makes us feel better right away, rather than this kind of delayed approach to can I sit in some discomfort and on some uncertainty long enough to do the thing that I want to do. So the first thing would really be, can I identify the sources of confidence that are destabilizing my confidence, which some of the more common uh, causes are comparison to other people, like an emotional and attentional attachment to future goals and outcomes that are not controllable. Surprise, surprise. When we try to control things we can't control, we don't feel very much control, right? Um, Oftentimes positive affirmations and like smothering ourselves with positive thinking, quote unquote, destabilizes confidence because after a certain point, we know we're lying to ourselves. If you're in a really difficult situation or facing a significant challenge and you're smothering it with positivity, there's a certain point where you know you're just lying and it's really difficult to be confident if you know you're lying to yourself. Um, So there are a variety of different ways that we try to, oh, one of the, and by the way, the kind of primary barrier for people building more stable confidence is a reliance on past outcomes to project future outcomes. Meaning past, if I perform well, then that will tell me I can perform well in the future. And the bottom line is that trap loop runs out really quick because anybody knows that past success, when you go actually get back in the performance realm, doesn't count for anything Mm. anymore. Right now there's certainly learning that we can take from it, valuable lessons, but the bottom line is if you're a major champion 10 years ago, doesn't count in the same way that if you're a major champion last week and you go tee it up again, also doesn't count. So us relying on past to predict our future is a super unstable source of confidence. And again, we have to understand the mechanisms under that, which is your brain's trying to calculate probability all the time. And it knows there's a probability error, meaning if this happened this week, that is no guarantee that it's going to happen the next week, that it can calculate so fast that we can't even consciously keep up with it. Mm. Then we have to understand what stable confidence is really built on, which if we're just getting down to the nitty gritty, it's built on two principles. It's built on groundedness, meaning can I create space for myself to be able to execute whatever skill set, strategy, et cetera, now? So can I actually be focused on the thing I'm doing when I'm doing it? And acceptance is the second piece, which is can I stop trying to project the future and dwell on the past? by accepting the past for what it is and accepting the uncertainty of the future. An unwillingness to let go of the past leads to frustration and anger. That's a direct route. An unwillingness to allow allow uncertainty to unfold in the future, which by the way, the future is always uncertain, is the definition of anxiety, right? So a low level of acceptance for us, if we're talking about why it destabilizes confidence is it's always pushing us off time, meaning into the past and into the future. On a neurological level, what that does for us, now we are just multitasking. And human beings can multitask. We're not very good at it when it comes to skill-based things. Mm -hmm. So right now we're multitasking. I'm talking, you're listening. We're both sitting. We're both nodding our heads and moving our hands. 
But when it comes to doing something that requires real skill and focus, our focus is jumping back and forth from task to task. And where this really destabilizes confidence is that our brain is specifically designed to favor tasks that are avoidance-based because it is designed to keep us alive. So if I tell myself, I'm giving a big talk in front of a big group and I tell myself, you better not screw this up and embarrass yourself. But at the same time, I need you to go out and give a really succinct talk with really clear talking points, et cetera, and do a great job. When those two tasks are ultimately happening at the same time, not only am I multitasking, my brain is specifically designed to favor avoidance, right? Which is why if you are not accepting of the fact that failure and mistakes are part of pretty much any type of performance realm, you end up fearing them. And if you're fearing them, you're basically telling your brain, dear God, please don't let this happen. And your brain in the tiny fractions of times it takes for us to physically execute skills, whether that's presentation skill, a golf swing, a throw, a swing of a bat, et cetera. I mean, we're talking about tiny amounts of time is more than enough time by many, many times for the fastest, strongest parts of our brains to pick avoidance over pursuit. And that's what ultimately destabilizes confidence for us, that we are multitasking between the things we don't want to happen and the things we do want to happen. And ultimately, we're never actually really pursuing the thing that we want singularly. That's fascinating. I can see where this does translate beyond golf, beyond sports, like you were saying, in high performance because I'm thinking that speech example, I'm, you're in, you're absolutely, I've been in that situation so many times, and many people listening are thinking of their own examples. So it, it's not a matter of, of taking 15 minutes beforehand and logically writing down the pros and the cons and the risks and the rewards. You're telling me in just that, that blink of an eye, the brain is doing all that work for us, and that's guiding our thoughts and our behaviors. Yes. Correct. Now you would want to do some work before. So for example, before any real competition, and I'll just use uh, the Olympics as an example, because it's something that many people have observed and can relate to the fact that you get one chance every four years, depending wow. on your sport. If you have, and I'll just to, so there's a, one of the teams I work with, I won't go into because I, I don't do the breaking confidentiality thing, but yep. in their sport, quite literally their performance is only several seconds long. And if you don't perform in that several seconds, there's an elimination round and you are out. So quite literally, you could train for four years or perhaps even more. And in a matter of 10 seconds, you could be out. If you have not accepted that possibility beforehand, the time that you are in that 10 seconds, your brain will figure it out. We cannot avoid this, right? So it knows it's either now or never, and you have not given it, told it, you don't need to try to save me from this. Right. So us front loading our psychology by asking ourselves, what's the worst case scenario for our, my performance? And then asking myself, am I willing to risk that? Now, by the way, when I say worst case scenario, I don't mean I project it way worse than it really is. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact, the objective facts of the matter, okay. if that's not something that I am willing to risk. I'm going to be multitasking with avoidance. Go back to the example of my college teammates. One who's somewhat out of shape, crazy stable confidence because he's always willing to accept, you know, what makes mistakes happen. And when they do, I'm going to hustle back and I'm going to move on with my life. So it's not that he liked making mistakes or that he was satisfied with them. And he did make some mistakes from time to time, but there weren't a deterrent for him in his uh, performance because he's willing to accept that, you know, if you're going to play great, sometimes you're going to make mistakes and I'll, I'll live with that. And I'll live with the fact that coach is going to yell at me. I'll live with the fact that sometimes it might even cost us goals, et cetera. My other teammate, freakishly athletic, crazy skilled, 
hated the, I, the idea of making a mistake was something he was unwilling to accept. Wow. It was fearful to him. And because he wasn't willing to accept it, he was always trying to avoid it. And it doesn't take a psychology expert to figure out that if you perform always trying to avoid mistakes, you're going to lead yourself right to them, or you're never going to be performing well enough because you will never take the calculated risks necessary to be successful. So if we're thinking about what stable confidence is, it's credible permission to perform right now without a guarantee of how the future is going to play out. Hmm. And that is a really scary idea for us sometimes when the things that we really want are at stake, both self-imposed and the actual constraints of our performance. Okay, Raymond, it's probably a good transition into your brand new book, Golf Beneath the Surface. And of all the books you could write, with this as kind of the kind of the principle that we've been talking about, why did you go after this particular angle and this topic? What was behind it? Um, I'll try to figure out how to say this diplomatically, but also honestly. Um, I think there's really good below the surface psychology available in almost every performance realm. Thus far, golf hasn't really been one of them. And I have a lot of clients um, in golf. It's one of the areas that's it, thankfully for golf, it's been one of these sports that has been more accepting of psychological services, period, end of sentence. You know, most sports are coming around now, even the what we might classify as kind of the hyper-masculine sports are starting to figure out, oh, these dudes and girls are not just robots. They're actually people. And we can yeah. train them to be happier, healthier, higher functioning people who can be more resilient. Right. Um, but there's just been a lot of surface level psychology in golf. And, uh, quite frankly, I was trying to provide something better, um, in that realm of performance where, Hey, here's the introduction, a lot of surface level psychology that has been helpful to a lot of people. I don't want to pretend it hasn't, but for the people who are like, give me more, I'd like to really see how far I can stretch this thing, or I'd really like to enjoy the game more than just trying to tell myself to be present or just relax. Cause that's not really working for me. Here's something that I'm, I'm hoping will be a little bit more comprehensive for people. And it's the first performance psychology book in golf for sure. That is really rooted in science. There's some that reference science. Some of them do it better than others, but I'm talking about, I am not the expert as the author in this book. Science is the expert. Mm. I heard you on a podcast make mention of that. You are a PhD. You went back for your doctorate, but you also talked about how the science, there's been such new evidence over the last two decades. And for example, I, I'm not obviously a PhD, but in what area has there been new research or new evidence and science that would back up some of these principles? I'm intrigued. I mean, all areas. So the great news is technology is moving to the point research-wise that we are able to measure things in real time that, um, well, let's, well, here's an example. We talked fixed and growth mindset before. One of the things about a fixed mindset, if you measure people's brain activity and their dopaminergic levels, when they are in challenging and um, high performance, high stakes situations, their brain activity is just really high frequency, high intensity brain activity, which essentially means the roadways between their brain and their body are clogged up like a traffic jam, which make it harder to be able to execute very quickly. What you also notice is there's 
it's a dopamine depleted state. And this mm-hmm. is important because dopamine plays an important role in what is enjoyable that is worth pursuing for us. And it also plays a significant role in how we experience the passage of time. So for example, flow state is a high dopaminergic state being present for us, right? The reason it feels good, even though we're working really hard, we are facing a challenging situation, it's really enjoyable to us. Low frequency and low intensity brainwaves. So the communication between our brain and body is flying. Hmm. The high levels of dopamine and probably norepinephrine, meaning basically some adrenaline, basically mean it's a super high focus, high energy, high enjoyment experience for us. Those same challenges for a fixed mindset, good luck getting into flow state because you are always going to be preoccupied with the future and the anxiety that comes with it. What's great about being in a growth mindset as well. So we're not just talking about being able to perform in real time. We're also talking about what is the ripple effect from that mindset. People who have a legitimately growth mindset, effort is enjoyable to them. The actual struggle, the sacrifice, the vulnerability is a, also a high dope. Their dopaminergic system pairs to effort, not to outcomes. And that is crazy important because that means the thing itself, even when it's at its most difficult, is what's motivating you, wow. not just the outcome. That's why we find that people who have a growth mindset are more intrinsically motivated and have longer, happier, healthier, and more successful careers than people who don't. Because the thing is sustaining them, not the outcomes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. uh, Sorry for interrupting you. I I apologize. Can that, can that be taught? Are you hardwired to be that type of a athlete or business person or leader? Growth mindset is a core belief and our core beliefs can change and Hmm. we can change our core beliefs. I mean, one of the most uh, potent interventions for building a growth mindset is simply understanding that at a mechanistic level, our brain changes based on our experiences. And if I bring a different mindset or focus into an experience, it changes the experience and that ultimately changes my brain. It's a process called neuroplasticity, which basically our brain rewires and speeds the connections or loosens the connections between things based on our actual experiences with stuff. It's a lot easier when we're younger, a little Mm -hmm. bit harder when we're older, which is part of the reason why change is harder for us as we get older. It's not just that we're crotchety. It's also that our brain is not designed to change as fast. (laughs) Yeah. But to your earlier question, what we're like, all of our research is starting to confirm or deny with direct tangible evidence, either brain activity or dopaminergic levels the psychology that does and doesn't work for us. Hmm. So one of the things about Carol Dweck's work with her growth mindset is that it is supported by brain scans. It's supported by neuroplasticity. It's supported by dopaminergic measures. It's supported by brain activity. Hence, and by the way, a growth mindset promotes groundedness and acceptance because you are not having to be validated by the future to tell you who you are, or how talented you are, period, end of sentence. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is science is telling us more now than ever about what works and what doesn't for human psychology. Um, it's time for us to update in a lot of areas. It would yeah. be my contention. Yeah. What kind of feedback are you getting early on, um, on your book? I know it's going to be, it's set to release, I believe on May 9th, I think. And what kind of feedback are you getting, though, from people who are important to you about the book? Well, the people who are important to me are a biased bunch, but um, I'm happy to say so before I even submitted the book for publication, I had it reviewed by 100 professional golfers, 100 amateur golfers, 100 
teaching professionals in golf and a hundred or so, or I'm sorry, 50 or so people that I consider just kind of gatekeepers in the golf world and to get just critical feedback from them. And the overwhelming feedback was, wow, this is really going to be something good. Some people are going to struggle with how um, comprehensive it is, but if you actually read the book, you know, essentially people said, if someone actually reads this book, there's no way they don't find value in it, which is great. And it's been something that has been um, really met with a lot of praise by some people in the field. Like for example, Sean Foley, who everyone knows was coached to tiger and he coaches a variety of players on tour all the way down to a variety of professional players who have told me, this is what I had a sense of what was going on underneath, but I only knew it here and it's helped me connect a lot of dots. So thankfully right now it's been met with a ton of praise and I think it's going to be a really valuable resource for people mm-hmm. um, and be something I hope will be a supplement to what's already available. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I'm in, in business. And one thing I noticed early in my career, Raymond, was my the promotions came very quickly. And my skill level, I got better really fast. I'm mm-hmm. in sales. And so I became really proficient. And I looked at the leaderboard in my sales team. And I always mattered to me, okay, I need to go, I'm ranked number five out of 10, or I'm ranked number three out of 10. And that really, that really drove me. And then I got promoted and then more promotions. And it seemed like I could get better very quickly. So now I'm a different stage of my career where it just feels like that I'm, I've, I haven't arrived. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying the, the drive to continue to get better. It's just different from when I was early in my career, when I just felt like I was making real progress. What is that? What am I experiencing in, in not just a surface psychology, but a little bit deep, deeper? Yeah. You're experiencing the learning curve. So our learning curve, um, is steep to flat, which means when we start something, um, it's really a lot easier for us to get better at it at really um, steep clips, simply because we're just not very good at it. (laughs) That would be me. Right. So if we look at, if we were to zoom at the learning curve, you would see just an arc again, going steep to flat. And at the bottom, what you see is like crazy amounts of really rapid increase in performance then very small declines in performance as we learn new stuff and we figure out how to use them. And then there are these very short plateaus. But as you move up the learning curve and you get better at something and the competition gets better, it takes more time and more energy to make smaller and smaller increments of progress. Right. So if you just think about the difference, you know, again, we'll use a golf analogy in case, but you could use this for any sport. The amount of time and the amount of effort it goes from shooting 100 in an 18 hole round to 90, nothing, Hmm. almost nothing. The difference from going to 90 to 80, a little bit more, still not a ton. The difference going to 80 to 70, crazy. (laughs) The difference from going to 70 to 65, that's the difference between being a scratch golfer and a world-class golfer. Yeah. Right. And the amounts of time and energy to make this, I mean, you're talking about fine tuning things to an nth degree that when added up over time makes a huge difference. Uh, Golfers ask me all the time, well, how much are your services worth? And the best I can calculate using the algorithm I have is one stroke per round. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but over a season, over a tournament, that's the difference between making cuts, contending more and however much. And that goes for every single performance realm. Mm-hmm. Where the difference between just being pretty good and being elite is this tiny amount. And it's the amount of time and energy required to make and sitting in the discomfort and the uncertainty of the effort required to continue toward it 
And again, hence why the growth mindset is so important. When you get to the points in the learning curve where just being physically good enough or intelligent enough, et cetera, isn't enough to move you anymore, you will find out if you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, because what will keep you moving is you're going to enjoy to some degree or relish and find value in the effort toward making that progress which is why people in a fixed mindset, the effort required to get better is never enough because they go, well, look at how small that increment is and how much effort is required. And that formula never fits for them. And by the way, it wouldn't if what you believe is every time I fail on the way to that tiny bit of incremental progress, it tells me I'm not talented enough and I shouldn't be doing this. Like that is not something that anybody would want to do. Right. So if you though have a legitimate growth mindset and you find value in the effort, in the struggle and the vulnerability and the failures involved toward working towards success and your dopaminergic system is paired to that effort, then you continue and you keep going and you try to figure out how good you can be. And like you said, we technically, we don't ever arrive. Like even though that learning curve gets super flat at the top and seems like it plateaus, technically it doesn't. It's just that the amount of time and effort to make even the next small, tiny step of progress is so hard to see sometimes it's nuts. So you're experiencing the learning curve. And then on top of that, if you're like me and you're over the age of 25, (laughs) it takes more time and more effort for our brain to rewire, to do things differently. Yeah. When we're younger, our brain is designed to create tons of neural connections to learn a ton of new stuff. As we get older, it's trying to reinforce the ones we already have. And so to rewire those is, again, hence the more time and more effort. Okay, the book, Golf Beneath the Surface, it is. it sounds incredible. I have not read it yet, but I'm going to. But listening to you talk about it, and I'm, I'm drawing parallels to the business world. Raymond, this sounds like a fantastic leadership book. Now, would you push back on me on that and say, no, 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 this is more for sports? And Or would you say, oh, no, this thing does apply? Does it offend you when I say this sounds like a killer leadership book? No, it was a significant decision for me to whether I was going to write this for golf specifically or just a more generalized um, performance psychology book. Um, I've been working with golfers long enough that I feel a sense of responsibility to the golf community to leave it in a better place than I found it. Um, that isn't to say that isn't true for me in some other areas, but it, that is particularly true for me in golf because that's kind of where I uh, kind of sharpen my teeth in the performance realm. Good. Um, I think if anyone read this book and whatever the golf language is, they changed it to whatever their performance realm was, it w- I would challenge anyone to read it and not find something that would be valuable to them, whether they're running a business you're a musician, you're an actor, an actress, you're a military professional, et cetera, that you can find something that will help you understand your psychology better and therefore use your brain more to your advantage. That's great. What would you hope someone would uh, think or do differently as a result of reading this book? Um, my hope is that they would understand the mechanisms of how to really build, um, use their brain based on how it's actually designed to have more stable confidence. And the reason stable confidence is stable confidence, excuse me, is really important is because that's what grants you access to your skill or your ability or not. You could be the most talented person in the world, but if you can't give yourself permission to use those skills and that talent when it matters to you, you don't have access to it. And, you know, quite frankly, there's a certain level of regret that we have in our lives when we put in the type of work that you and I were just discussing. And then when the most important times for us to use it, we don't. And it's because we held ourselves back from, from self-imposed limitations There's a certain level of distaste with that and regret for people. 
So my hope is that people will understand how to remove some of those barriers, to grant more access to all the things that they painstakingly try to develop. Um, and when you do that, not only does the thing you do become more intrinsically motivating, which is a fancy way of saying it becomes a lot more enjoyable, even when it's more difficult, you're present more often. And when we do that, um, we perform better, we are happier and we're healthier human beings. And if anybody picks this book up and has any bit of information about how to get closer to that, it would be a huge success. Mm, higher purpose. Yeah. Raymond, what's the best way to stay in touch with you and everything that you're doing, all the projects you're up to? That's a great question. Um, I think the best way to get on, catch me would probably be uh, on Twitter, although rarely uh, you can catch me at, at BTS underscore mindset, BTS beneath the surface. Um, my website is btsmindset.com. Um, and other than that, I've been floating around a couple of podcasts lately like this one. So anytime people want to um, try to gravitate you, if you, you know, search my name on most of the um, podcast engines, you can find it there as well. Um, we have a question uh, that came in. This is yeah. from um, a golfer. He happens to be my nephew. He was a division one golfer at University of Minnesota mm -hmm. and just incredible. Ever since he was just a toddler watching him swing the club, it was just effortless. And he loved, loved and loves golf. But I told him I was going to be talking to you, Raymond. And I said, what would you ask? And here's the question he asked. I'd be curious to know if he knows anything about the psychology behind when you're playing well, it seems like you can never play bad ever again. And conversely, when you are playing bad, it feels like you will never get it back. What do you think? Yeah, that has a lot to do with how our brain and our tendency to project the future. Um, when things aren't going well for us, our tendency oftentimes based on our default settings in our brain is to default an even worse future. It's a survival mechanism that is trying to save us from the full brunt of disappointment and heartbreak by microdosing it to us. So if I'm assume that I'm never going to play well ever again, when that possibility inevitably hits me, it will be less painful because I've kind of, you know, softened the blow, so to speak, when I get there. It's, again, it's a defense mechanism. Thousands of years ago in a tribe, if things were going terrible and you go, man, if we keep doing this, this is going to get worse. It saved you from potentially harm to life and limb, right? Yes. When things are going well for us, it feels like it's never going to end is usually our dopaminergic system kind of taking over, particularly our desire dopaminergic system saying like enough is never enough, which is what it does. And the downside with both of those is that they are wildly inaccurate. <laughs> and so if we can orient more toward what's truth, which is sometimes we're playing really well and we always want it to last as long as possible. And so if I stay present with it and stop, make sure that I'm not multitasking with anything, I get the most out of that. And when the times when I'm not playing very well, if I can, again, be present, be accepting that my current reality is I'm not playing very well, but that current reality is not necessarily a reflection of my future, even the near future, then all of a sudden that opens me up to being present more often. And instead of me trying to project the future all the time, which again, it's not a problem ethically or morally. The issue is we're terrible at it because we don't right. ever really know what the future is going to be. In which case, then I can actually be singularly focused on the task in front of me, whether that's walking to my golf ball, having dinner with my wife, hitting the next golf shot, et cetera, rather than um, trying to figure out what the future holds for us, which is always a tendency of our mind because our brain is geared toward trying to always predict the future. Right. And in survival settings, super, super valuable. In thriving settings, at a certain point, 
it's a past the point of diminishing returns and it's not helpful for us. So it's partly the, the fundamental answer to his question is because that's how our brain is designed. The remedy for it though, is to notice when we are projecting the future in ways that aren't necessarily accurate and allow ourselves to be present more often. When we allow the future to just unfold, so essentially the unfolding of uncertainty and we're present more often, the world is much more novel to us. So instead of us going, it has to meet this rigid window of what I think it is, it's open-ended. It's like a choose your own adventure story that we're watching play out in front of us. And that is a super high dopamine, dopaminergic rich experience for us. Like novelty and dopamine are like best friends. Yeah. Like here's again, flow state, flow state. I'm just immersed in the present, seeing how things unfold in my performance and I'm curious about stuff and I'm interested in, Ooh, if I do this, well, what does this happen? It's this very open-ended childlike playfulness with cause and effect. And when we do that, we keep good things going for longer. We adjust from mistakes and failures sooner. And it ultimately just kind of keeps us moving. Like you said, up this learning curve toward the things that we want in a slow incremental growth. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Raymond, at the end of each podcast, I ask my guests, what is their I dare you challenge for all of us? And so now with your background, I can't wait for this. Yeah. What, would you, what would you challenge us to do? I dare you to do what? What do you think? Yeah, I would dare people to have a higher level of acceptance for uncertainty and allow it to unfold more often without the need to fill it in and pay attention to when you are and then allow yourself to be present more often. Instead of making conclusions about stuff, this doesn't mean we don't ever plan for the future because it's helpful for us to do so. But in your performance realms, in your meetings, whether you're a golfer or whatever, like, can I just allow for uncertainty unfold a little bit bit more? And again, uncertainty is not a bad word. It just means unknown. And we typically treat it like a bad word. So I would dare people to just let the unknown unfold a little bit more and see what kind of space and freedom that allows you to operate within. Well, Raymond, this has been a lot of fun having you on the podcast. And your book is called Golf Beneath the Surface. And I, I want to thank you also for taking the time to be part of the podcast. I can't, in our time together, I'm looking at the clock here, about 50 minutes you gave us so many nuggets of information and you just brought it. And I'm not surprised. I just want to thank you for being here, sir. Yeah, Darren, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Okay. That was Dr. Raymond Pryor. We just spent time, everybody, with one of the most sought after names in performance psychology. It's who the world's best performers go to. So we had time with them. What fun that was. And what did you take away from that? And what will you implement in your life starting today? So I'm a little self-conscious right now because I'm trying not to give you any surface psychology. But let's leave it here. Dr. Pryor shed some new light on mindset and how we can live happier, healthier lives. And Dr. Pryor's new book, Golf Beneath the Surface, The New Science of Golf Psychology. For sure, it's a golf book. And I loved his explanation of why he wants it to be for golfers, really higher purpose of why he wants it to be out there. Backed up by science, i tell you what, This is also a fantastic leadership book. And that's when you know a a book has legs or concepts have legs when it applies not only just to golf, for example, but it applies to other areas of your life. So be sure to check out that book. Whether you are a golfer (laughs) or you're not, this is the type of book that's probably going to be in your bookshelf for years. So now that you listen to the episode, who will you share it with? Family, friends, people in your life who are important to you that may benefit from this episode, I would invite you to take that step. 
And make sure you're subscribing to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Every guest is, is fantastic. And Dr. Pryor is just one more example. Also, follow us on Instagram, at I Dare You Pod. There you'll find video excerpts, video snippets of this interview with Dr. Pryor. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I believe there are over 4 million podcasts all across the world. you got a lot of choices, is my point. And you're here on the I Dare You Podcast, and you're sharing with others. The growth is happening because of you. This podcast doesn't exist unless you are listening and you are sharing. It's not lost on me. I just want you to know how much I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 70. I'm working on Episode 71 right now, finishing up the editing. I can't wait for you to hear it. That'll happen next week. I'll see you back here on the I Dare You podcast. I'll see you then.